when we've had something happen, especially if it's significant, we store that in our unconscious mind. And then as soon as something comes up that is like, oh, this could potentially lead to the same thing again, I want to self-preserve, you go straight into that survival instinct because it's the path of least resistance and because it was significant in the past. So before you go, give yourself a bit of compassion with the whole thing because everybody does it. It's just what are you going to do with that knowledge to change things around? Welcome to the Happy Nurse Podcast. Nurses are the backbone of healthcare, always there to care for strangers as if they were one of their own, often forsaking special moments with their own family in order to ensure another's loved one is being cared for. As nurses, self-care is essential. I am Elena Mullery, nurse educator and self-care mentor for nurses. I'm an RN with 20 years of clinical experience. I have first-hand experience of stress and burnout. It was this experience which led me to develop a passion for personal development and pursue the study of mindfulness, meditation, hypnotherapy, and neuro-linguistic programming. Each episode, I will be promoting self-care strategies to those who always care for others. I have broken self-care down into five aspects mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, and indulgence to make it easy to ensure all your self-care needs are being met. Each episode, I will interview nurses and self-care gurus from around the world to help you with each aspect of your self-care. Welcome to the Happy Nurse Podcast with Elena Mullery. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Happy Nurse Podcast. Today, I am joined by my wonderful friend, Michelle Powell. Now, Michelle has been on the show many times now. For those of you who haven't heard her and I chatting before, Michelle is a trauma recovery specialist. She has got an extensive background in holistic healthcare. She's worked on Hamilton Island. She is the author of an Amazon best-selling book. And her and I have the most wonderful conversations when we get together like this on the podcast. So today I'm really excited to have her on the show as I had this kind of light bulb moment the other day in the shower, which is probably too much information for you all, sorry. And I thought I could get Michelle on and we could talk about the trauma response and how it shows up in her life. So I text Michelle and said, what do you think? And she was like, yes, yes, yes. So (laughs) Michelle, welcome. We're here. We managed to get this to happen. I love it. I'm really excited about this topic because I think the trauma responses and the ways that it shows up in our lives is probably something that's not spoken about enough. So I love that we get to unpack this together today. Yeah, and it's such an interesting topic as well, because it's behaviours that we will all do, we all recognise, but we don't associate them with them being trauma responses. I mean, I remember when I first started learning about them, I was like, oh my goodness, yes, so it is. But it's something that I just hadn't ever thought of and put two and two together. So I think most of us have some kind of trauma response playing out in our lives. I know I do, but I now recognize them when they're happening and I can deal with it as it comes up. But do you want to kind of give the listeners an overview of what a trauma response may be? We could probably even unpack that itself because everyone will have their own different trauma responses, like you said, and might not even be aware of the way that they're reacting or responding to people or situations in their life as a trauma response. So maybe if we just even remove those words for a moment and just you know, ask the listeners, when you're afraid of something or when you're doubting yourself or doubting a person or there's something that you're fearful of perhaps, are you responding from an optimistic point of view or are you responding from a worst case scenario, fear, I can't trust myself, I can't trust this person, past-based 
experiences. Yeah, because we are all products of our past. So this is where this trauma response comes in, because that trauma or the traumatic experience that we've experienced in our past gets stored in our subconscious minds. And then when we're put in that situation again, it automatically flags it for us. You know, our our subconscious, like the red flag, you don't want to go there again because we've associated emotions from that last traumatic experience to then build this trauma response that's in our heads. Exactly. And I think this is where a lot of old patterns, self-sabotage, a bunch of other labels that we can place on ourselves is actually coming from trying to protect yourself from a perceived threat. And it's not necessarily an actual threat, but maybe in a romantic setting, it's being triggered by a new person or maybe in a work setting or whatever's happened in the past, you've created this connotation in your mind that it's going to be a negative experience again. And we're constantly trying to move away from pain and towards pleasure, whether we're consciously or unconsciously aware of it, but we can even be sabotaging our own happiness because of fear of the past repeating. And it's that fight, flight, freeze response that gets activated in us, which then influences our behavior and how we respond to the situation. Exactly. And I think that's important to recognize too, because it's not your fault that you automatically go into a fear-based response because we are animals at the end of the day. You know, we do drop into those survival instincts. And if something really bad has happened to us in the part, we've been hurt, harmed, or had something really negative happen to us, we automatically have this, like you said, a red flag go up going, oh, hang on, this might be similar to something I've experienced before. I don't want that to happen again. It's that two million year old brain, you know, back when we first evolved as humans, we didn't live the lifestyle we live today, but our brain doesn't know that. So it still perceives a threat in the same way as it did back then, whereas it's not tigers running after us now or, you know, impending doom happening. It's some (laughs) chased down the street by a zombie. (laughs) Yeah, more likely these days, but hey. Anyway, that's apocalyptic, isn't it? It is. (laughs) We're totally getting sidetracked now. But yeah, it's almost, it's not a design fault, but it's learning to manage this part of our brains that has not evolved as society has evolved. Especially if you look at the last 200 years in particular, the advancements we've made as a society in the lifestyle that we live now compared to 2 million years ago, you can't compare them. You know, it'd be like, to them about 2 million years ago, this would be like living on Mars to us now, you know, it's that kind of craziness. So our brains just aren't designed to deal with this overstimulation that we're always having in this on-demand lifestyle. And that's where we can start tying ourselves up in knots and anxiety can come in. And it's all a result of this trauma response. Absolutely. And I think it's in really important to note that we are hardwired for survival, then you've probably heard about the path of least resistance. And so when we've had something happen, especially if it's significant, we store that in our unconscious mind. And then as soon as something comes up that is like, oh, this could potentially lead to the same thing again, I want to self-preserve, you go straight into that survival instinct because it's the path of least resistance and because it was significant in the past. So before you go, you know, (laughs) thinking that, oh no, what am I doing? Give yourself a bit of compassion with the whole thing because everybody does it. It's just, what are you going to do with that knowledge to change things around Because generally speaking, what I see is when people get stuck in the trauma responses, they don't get to live the life that they truly want to live, that they truly deserve to have. And therefore, they're not happy 
they're not fulfilled, they're living with depression or anxiety or other unwanted feelings, emotions or lifestyle because they're actually afraid to go for what they want. And it can show up in so many different ways. I mean, I'll share one of mine personally, and I can be fiercely independent at times. And that is actually a trauma response because it's a result of me having, it's not being let down. My, you know, I've had, I've lost a number of significant loved ones in my life. And I remember when I unpacked this with my therapist a few years ago, she got me to do this testing and it came out that one of my core wounds is abandonment. And that was losing my mom at a young age. That has like imprinted in my subconscious, I've got this abandonment wound. And it's nobody's fault. It's just circumstance. But that has caused me to be fiercely independent because I've now got this subconscious belief that people will bail on me. They'll abandon me. So I just think I'll do it myself. You know, it shows up in the most interesting of ways. And I love that you could share that too, because I think so many people listening can resonate with that. And I know for myself, that's been really true for me. You've got to be strong. You've got to be independent, do things on your own because you're going to be abandoned. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be on your own. So you may as well just get used to doing that that way. And, but with saying that, then you create these pathways where you don't let people in really close and create the connections and the love and, you know, whether that's platonically or romantically, you don't actually get what you truly want because you're so afraid of that rejection and abandonment that you put up these protective walls, whether you're doing it consciously or unconsciously, but then that creates more pain in the long run. Definitely. And I can see myself doing it. Now I know what I'm doing and I can kind of catch myself at it. And it's taken a lot for me to be able to ask people for help. You know, I think one of the amazing things that Happy Nurse has done for me is I've now started, like I source the editing of this podcast. I don't do it because I just don't have the time. I've got a wonderful team who do it for me, but that has helped to build that trust that I can rely on other people because I send this recording off to Leon and his team and the magic happens and it all appears where it should every Tuesday, you know? So I don't have to worry, but that was a big step for me because I was letting go of control and letting someone else do it for me. But it's been a huge lesson and it's helping to rebuild that trust in other people. Oh, I think that's so beautiful and a really good example of starting to change those trauma patterns and responses in yourself. And, you know, as you know, I've been a bit similar to you in that regards with, oh shit, I really have to, or get to ask people for help and ask for support and not feel like I have to do everything on my own. And I think that When you notice these things in yourself, you can start in the areas that feel a little bit safer. So it might be your business or your workplace or something along those lines. But I also, it's funny too, that you were saying that, you know, releasing a little bit of control, like loosening the reins, because I was only having a conversation with one of my friends last night and I was using like equine analogies because I think most of you know that I'm, you know, the the horsey chick that's been riding ever since I was a little girl. And so I was explaining similar to this to her because I knew that it would click. And I'm like, what happens when you're riding? So she rides dressage, which is all about dressage just means training. So, but it's very accurate and needs to be almost perfect in the way that it's done. But the thing is, if you're, holding the reins too tightly and you're holding the horse too tightly and you're, you know, restricting its flow and its movement, you're actually going to get marks deducted and you're not going to get the result that you want because the horse can't move at its full potential. But if you actually loosen the reins and let go and relax your body more, you actually increase the communication flow between you and your horse. Its muscles can move more freely and you actually get so much more out of it than trying to control every little aspect. And so 
I'm sure in your own lives, there's many ways that you can play out analogies that float your own boat, but it's like, where can you loosen that grip a little bit on trying to keep yourself safe? Because in keeping yourself safe, you're most probably diminishing yourself and hurting yourself in some way. I love that analogy. And I'm sitting here listening to you thinking, oh my goodness, yeah, this makes so much sense. It is. It's by, it's almost like that perfectionism, you know, like that's another trauma response can be because everything has to be perfect. And you believe that if you don't do it yourself, it's not going to be as good as you could do it. And that then leads you down that path to anxiety, stress, overwhelm, burnout. You know, this is why it's so important to recognize where these trauma responses are appearing. Because, you know, like Michelle said, if you're holding the reins of that horse too tight, you're not going to let it breathe. And you're going to start to, I almost saw myself like making this horse go into this freeze, you know, for the fight, flight, freeze kind of image in my head. And that's what we do to ourselves. You know, if we've got the reins too tight on ourselves and we're trying to do everything and micromanage, then we do, we end up burning out. And when I find myself going into these responses, I'm like, Elena, burnout's not a good look for your brand. You can't go there. (laughs) Behave yourself. I say it to my colleagues and they just laugh. I'm like, oh, it's not good for my image. The burnt out happy nurse, it's not going to happen. You know, I know the tricks, but I'm still human. <laughs> so I think that's actually important to point out because it doesn't matter who you are, what your profession is or what you do in life. You are not exempt from being human. Like you experience life ups and downs just like everybody else does. But The difference is when you notice those signs and symptoms in yourself, you actually do something with it. And so I feel that's, you know, an important reminder. And I know for me, the horse analogy works well because it's for anyone that does ride, you know that the relationship that you have with a horse is something that is beyond words because you actually can feel each other. You sense each other. Horses are very emotionally intelligent. And so you have to build up a huge level of trust from both parties, both from a rider, because, I mean, I ride big horses, like 17-hand horses. So we're talking 700-kilo horses here, like I'm 56 kilos with a 700 kilo animal. If push came to shove, like seriously, there has to be trust that I'm the one that can look after us and manage us. And then from a horse's sense, when you ride a horse, you are actually in the position where a predator would attack them. They have to have such huge amounts of trust just for you to get on them, first of all, and then trust that you will lead both of you in a way that will do them no harm. And I actually think that parallels the relationships that we have in life because there needs to be trust in your romantic relationships, both back and forth. There needs to be trust in your work relationships. There needs to be trust in your family and your friendships. But when these trauma responses come up, you can find that that trust flow doesn't move the way that it should and can create a lot of dysfunction, a lot of hurt, a lot of miscommunication and all sorts of unwanted things. And let's face it, the relationships that we have in our life are some of the most paramount and most important aspects that we can ever have in life. That's what being human is all about. It's about relationships and connections. We're all wired to seek that out. We're not designed to survive on our own, you know? It's so important. And I think it's really important to learn to trust others in all those different aspects that you just said, Michelle. But I think fundamentally, it's learning to trust yourself and to have your own back and to know that you have got the strength, the courage, the love for yourself behind you to get you through these bumps in the road. 100%. And I think we've like 
brought in a few different elements here. Like we've talked a little bit about that perfectionism, which can be greatly tied into this deep-seated belief that most people have that I've come across anyway, is this deep-seated belief that I'm not good enough. And then that breeds this distrust of self, like you were saying, and more distrust in other people. So you know, low self-esteem, low self-value, lacking confidence, experiencing anxiety or any other unwanted emotions. When we peel back and look at these trauma responses and look at the things that have happened in your life, a lot of it is your way of protecting yourself and also potentially not even feeling like you are good enough to have that person, that job, that opportunity, that whatever in your life in the first place. So therefore, you push it away instead of inviting it into your life when that's actually what you really want to do. You want that thing. You want that person. You want that whatever in your life, but you don't know how to accept the good thing because it goes against what you've experienced before. So you push it away. You barricade yourself from it because, well, God forbid you actually do get what you want and it does make you happy because maybe you've never experienced that before. And that's so true, Michelle. It's that survival instinct in us as well, you know, like we talked about earlier. Yeah. We're just, it's self-preservation. And also that better the devil you know sort of thing. It's like, well, hang on, I can keep myself safe like this. I know how to manage this. I might not be happy, but I've been doing X, Y, Z for so long. Sometimes the thought of change, as much as people say they want change all the time, change is quite difficult because even from a neurological standpoint, you've gone the path of least resistance and there's you know sayings basically in lots of different ways ways of looking at your mind and how your mind functions. But there's a simple saying that neurons that fire together, wire together. And so when you've continuously in the past had this particular thing happen and you respond in this particular way, the neurons in your brain fire that way, that path of least resistance. So when you want to change that path, think about it kind of like a river, The river bends and twists the way that it does because it's the path of least resistance. But after a heavy rainfall, it needs to sometimes find a new way because that water cascading through is too much for that normal path. So then it will carve a new path. And so too, you can change how your neurons fire and you can rewire those pathways to a way that's more congruent with who you really want to be. Because generally you don't want to be the person that reacts from a trauma fear-based perspective. You want to react from an authentic, loving, the best version of yourself and you're the best version of your life that you want to be. And so Maybe that gives you a few visual aids to think about what's potentially going on in your brain. I love that. The river analogy is brilliant. I could visualize that in my head. And it's that path of least resistance that you were talking about. I absolutely love the study of neuroplasticity. It's so fascinating. And like, it's a groundbreaking discovery that it's not that old, really, is it? I can't remember exactly the date, but to understand that we can rewire our brains and our thought processes at any time. I mean, there was once upon a time a school of thinking that they were stuck, we couldn't change them. But with all this new research coming out, we can change our thought patterns if we want to. Quite easily, really. It doesn't take too long. And it is just recognizing when you're going into that negative survival kind of instinct and pulling yourself out of it and rewiring it by, well, there's a whole heap of different techniques you can use to rewire it. But it starts with believing that you're good enough and you're worthy and just showing yourself some love and compassion. 
Exactly. And I, I love that you've pointed out that that's really an important place to start because sometimes before you can even work on the trauma responses that you're having, it's worthwhile working on the actual limiting beliefs and decisions that you make about yourself and about your life that are actually holding you back and preventing you from changing those neurological pathways. Because just like you were saying, Elena, it actually doesn't need to be hard to rewire them. There's so many different methodologies and techniques out there. Like many of your listeners would have heard of NLP or timeline therapy or hypnosis or different types of mental and emotional coaching. Like there's so many different tools and techniques out there that are actually able to help you change these things and really quite quickly, a lot quicker than you believe is possible. That's so true, Michelle. I absolutely love all of those different therapies. As you know, I'm trained in most of them. So are you, aren't you? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the study of the subconscious mind or the unconscious mind is fascinating. And even meditation can help as well because it's helping you get into that space where you can start to become aware of these repetitive thoughts that you're having. You know, the aim with meditation is not to stop thinking. It's to become aware of what you are thinking and just letting those thoughts pass rather than letting them take you down rabbit warrens, I like to call it, you know, and creating doomsday situations or creating mountains out of molehills. It's just, it's giving you that awareness of those repetitive thoughts that are going on in your head and where you tend to default to when you do have some time on your hands. I mean, that's another trauma response. People who don't like being on their own and spending time by themselves because they're alone with their thoughts. And if you're not liking what you're thinking or what you're saying to yourself, then any distraction is better than that. I know years ago, I speak about it in my book that I've just published. When I was at home on my own, which was quite regularly back then, because I didn't have kids and my husband worked offshore, I couldn't be in the house without having the TV or the radio or some kind of background noise on because I didn't want to listen to what was going on in my head. I didn't realize that at the time, that was why I was doing it. But now with the hindsight that I've got... I understand why I was doing that. Whereas now, if I'm at home on my own, it's very rare. The TV goes on. You know, the kids can go to their dads on the day they go, and then they come back a week later, and the TV's still on the channel that it was on when they left, because I just don't put the thing on. You know, I'm busy doing other stuff, or, you know, just doing my own thing. But I've managed to break that pattern of having to have some kind of distraction in my life. I really like that as an example too because how frequently do you do something maybe unconsciously but when you stop and ask yourself why am I doing that? Like what is the trigger? What is the motive? What is the reason for wanting to do the thing? Then you get to learn an awful lot about yourself. And like you said, it might be that you don't want to be alone with your thoughts because then you actually really have to sit with them. And I've also found too over the years that people that make themselves so busy that they have no time to stop, that's also another way that you can be avoiding yourself and avoiding your own thoughts. Because if you're so busy, you don't have time to blah, 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 then you don't get those opportunities to reflect. But there's so many different ways that once again, those trauma responses can come up so that you can avoid yourself or avoid the so-called problem. And like Elena alluded to, there are so many different tools and techniques to assist with this. Like she just added in another one with meditation and you know, breath work is another beautiful one. So uh, there's so many different techniques that, you know, I call it from the top down. So from your mind and goes down into your physiology, but breath work does the reverse. Breath work uses your physiology to change your psychology and, you know, other 
modalities, like there's various types of Tai Chi that do the same thing. Use your physiology to change your psychology and yoga would be the same too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's various types of yoga for that too. Like there's so many different things out there that there's not a one size fits all. So I'm super encouraging of everyone just to explore open-heartedly and open-mindedly with what might be interesting for them to try and to explore. I totally agree. And it's only recently that I have actually discovered breathwork and the power of it. It was last year and I absolutely love it. It's you feel so rejuvenated afterwards. It's almost like a whole body reset. I mean, I don't just do breath work. I've taken it to the whole other extreme and thrown myself straight into the Marcel Hoff method where you do the breath work, you do the what they call the pony dance, and then you get in a bath of ice. But it's just the most amazing experience ever. And I know you're a fan of the ice bath too, aren't you, Michelle? Oh my God, yeah. I'm such a huge fan of the, you know, not just the Wim Hof stuff, but just breath work in in general and all of the cold therapies. And as you know, I've gone up to the mountains and done some pretty crazy (laughs) expeditions where we're getting in, you know, alpine glacial waters and rivers and waterfalls. And there's something really quite profound in using nature and so many natural ways to recalibrate ourselves and come back to the things that really truly matter. And I know for me personally, because I just like all of us, we're all on this self-learning, self-discovery, growth and evolution journey. And so for me, time and time again, no matter what courses or retreats or additional things I do for myself, personally, everything seems to come back to what's really important is the relationship that you have with yourself, the people that you have in your life and creating a life that gives you happiness and fulfillment. And it it just seems like so much else is noise. And I think that at least for me too, with having this conversation today about trauma responses, I think that it can help people open up and start looking at where can I build a better, loving, more stronger relationship with myself? Where can I build more loving, authentic connections in romantic and family and friends? Where can I move towards a career or business or path that truly gives me fulfillment and purpose. There's this word coming to mind. I just, I think describes what you are talking about beautifully and that connection to yourself. And I've shared it on social media recently and it's unfuckwithable. I think when you can get to that level of love for yourself, where you're completely at peace with who you are and what you stand for, and you understand what your values are, and you look at your past with compassion rather than with guilt or shame, and you can just be happy and content with who you are right now. And you're not judging yourself. You're not shaming on yourself. You're just offering yourself love and compassion. Then it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of you. You know, you're at this level of, you know who you are and you know that you're worthy of love. And it takes a lot to shake you when you reach that ultimate state of being unfuckwithable. I love that word. I think that's gold. It is cool. I first learned from Vishen Lakwani in The Code of the Extraordinary Mind. That's an amazing book for anyone who's interested. But where was I going with this? Yeah, it just, it comes back to, I always say I aim to live a life that I don't need a vacation from. Exactly. Boom. Hit the nail on the head. Love it. (laughs) If you're happy and you're content and 
Yeah, you don't need a vacation because vacations are escape. Yeah, we all like adventure and we all like change. I'm not saying I don't want to do that, but I don't have this constant need. I'm not always wanting to, I need to have the next holiday booked or I need to be, you know, it just, it doesn't bother me. I'm quite happy and content. And I think that's why I know I'm like on the opposite side of the world to my family right now. And I'm here in Australia and I can't get home because I'm not allowed to travel back to the UK because of COVID. But it could have been very different for me if I hadn't created that life. You know, I could have been a mess. I could have been in a heap thinking, oh my God, when am I going to see my family again? You know, I just trust. I'm like, they're safe. I'm safe. We just need to do this, sit it out. I'm the one who's probably, I feel so blessed and grateful to be in the situation I am listening to what's going on with them back home. But it's people say to me, do you not find it hard? You know, you're here on your own. You've got two kids, all your family's on the other side of the world. And I'm like, that was my choice. I chose this life. And yeah, it could be so different for me right now, but I'm just content with what's going on. And I really love the way you describe that as you know, not needing to have a vacation from your own life because, and I think that when people mention that, they assume that you don't want to travel or don't want to explore. That's not what Elena is honing in on. It's that that's actually factored into her ideal life. So instead of using, you know, vacations or holidays as, oh my God, I've got to escape my life because I'm really not happy fundamentally with my life and my lifestyle. But it's that this is a piece of my normal everyday life because I've factored in travel or adventures or whatever it is that's important to you. So it's, yeah, not saying that we don't want to have vacations. It's that that's a part of our ideal lifestyle. So it's a natural thing to factor in. It's not an escape. It's a part of that whole totality of fulfillment. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that because it can get misinterpreted. Yeah. And that's why I just thought it was just to hone that in a little bit there. (laughs) Thank you. I'd really love to maybe hone in on three particular life areas that we've kind of dabbled in a little bit to this point, but maybe we could hone in on three areas of our life where trauma responses can play out. So one with ourselves and how we see and value ourselves. two with the romantic relationships that we have in our life and three with our working lifestyle. Oh, this could get juicy. <laughs> I'm ready. Bring on the juice. Are you wanting personal examples? Oh my goodness. (laughs) I mean, you and I are pretty open booked in that, but maybe we can just start with what we've seen and noticed for the clients and people that we've worked with, with how those trauma responses can play out with how they view themselves. I have realized that this is actually a trauma response and it comes as a result of when I phone home to my beautiful family back in Scotland, there's two of my close family members who will ask me at least once a month how my weight is. How can I not have weight issues when I'm constantly being asked how I'm going with my weight? And that sort of perpetuates that trauma response there as well. And then how you show up in the world because there's this doubt of, well, shit, maybe a part of my worth is tied into my weight. Exactly. Yeah. And, but I can now see what's going on and I understand the dynamic and I just kind of let it go over my head, but it's still always there in my subconscious. And I think a lot of people can resonate with this one because, as you know, for me personally, I've shared a little bit about in my teens and my 20s, I had really severe eating disorders. And so I also had it ingrained from things that I'd learned from my mom and the way that she mistreated her own body, that, you know, you were only lovable if you were really skinny or you were this, that, and the other. And, 
you know, we're not going to make this a whole body image session, but I think in general, there is this pressure and expectation that in order to be worthy, you need to look and be a certain way. And then the experiences that we've had, like I had an ex-partner many years ago who was infatuated with a particular celebrity and why didn't I look like her? And I'm like, cause I'm not her. <laughs> but when I was really young, of course I take that on board and I'm like, Oh, well, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not skinny enough. Therefore I'm not lovable. Like we create all these stories and all these meanings from things that are done and said around us. And then we create identities around it too, which I think is the dangerous part. Because then we create this label and this identity that, well, I must not be because of blah, blah. And then that washes who we fundamentally are as a person. And then we don't be the real us because we're afraid of being rejected again. That is exactly what I've done. You know, I've created these labels in my head because obviously, you know, to me, and this is something that I've experienced since I was young, you know, a teenager. It's that, why are they asking me what my weight is? You know, is it, will they not love me if I'm over a certain weight? And it's funny what it does to you because like many times I've gone on these health kicks and I'll, I'll lose 10, 20 kilos but I'll just go back to what I am. I always end up back at the same weight. It's like this yo-yo thing because I've realized now when I do lose the weight, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for someone else. Yeah. And then that's not empowering because that's coming from a space of lack and they're not good enough. And I think this is actually a really great example, you know, some of the things that we've gone through in our own life because it comes back to this fear of judgment and fear of, you know, not just that rejection, but because there's such a fixation on the things that are quote unquote wrong with us. And therefore, if there's things wrong with us, then we must be wrong. But I do believe the irony is most of us struggle with the same sort of things, but it's just not spoken about. So, I mean, even our journeys have been similar in the respect of, you know, eating disorders, all sorts of external noise making us feel like who we are physically wasn't good enough. And therefore, there's that fear projected out as a trauma response oh, is this man in our lives going to see us the same, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's actually a really probably relatable example of how these traumatic events in relation to body image, then we're reacting out of fear instead of love, love for self and love for Maybe that person looking at us thinks we're the most beautiful thing they've ever seen because that's their personal definition of beauty. Exactly. And this kind of segues nicely into like in a romantic sense, you know, I'm single, I've been dating and it's something, this body image thing, it shows up there too, because like you just said, you know, I've got these beliefs in my head and I'm getting better at it. I'm still not 100%. As much as I know all this stuff, I understand it. This body image thing, because I am a bigger girl, I'm not even that big. I'm a 16, you know. But in terms of socially accepted and like the media, I would be considered probably pushing plus size, which is completely wrong. But it plays out when I'm dating because if I start to like someone, I'm then like, oh, I'm too fat. I'm not their usual kind of chick, you know, and there's one person in particular and he's in the gym all the time, all the time. And I'm like, he's surrounded by all these body beautiful women. What does he see in me? That's the thought that goes on in my head. Exactly. And that's a really classic example of a trauma response because of your previous experiences. Then you expect this man to show up that way. And Here's the thing, guys, then you're punishing someone for actions they have not done. And for me to word that another way, 
a lot of the listeners are parents and have multiple children. It would be like punishing one child for what the other one did. Exactly. It's ludicrous, logically, but this is what we do all of the time because of these trauma responses, because we've had these negative experiences before and therefore we expect the worst from people and we don't trust them and we then project all of that onto them when they haven't done anything to warrant that in the first place. It's fascinating how the mind works and how we trip ourselves up and these unconscious beliefs. I mean, I'm a lot better at it now, but I still have moments where I'm like, why would X be interested in me? Because, you know, I am the size I am. And it's really, I have to call myself out on it regularly and say, no, Elena, you know, that's not the case. And I can completely empathize with that with you because I feel exactly the same. And, you know, while I shared earlier that my body weight's, you know, smaller in comparison with saying that, that doesn't change the perception of your own body image. And, you know, like yourself, I've been dating and it's interesting when you get into those personal spaces because When it comes to romantic relationships, that's the most intimate you can be. And I'm not just talking sex and that physicality. I'm talking about in a romantic relationship, nobody gets that close to you physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So like, first of all, you want to be selective as to who you let in. But then second of all, because it's the most vulnerable you can be, this is where a lot of those trauma responses can be triggered because let's face it, how many of you guys listening today have had a shitty relationship? Like see that all of your hands are up, you know, (laughs) like we've all been in some potentially horrendous relationships that have hurt us, harmed us, tarnished our view, potentially on ourself or on romance or whatever. And so there can be this interesting argument that goes on in your own mind of knowing that love is a part of this human experiences and having that true love experience is one of the most beautiful and profound things that you can live through in this lifetime. But yet on the other hand, you can be super afraid of that because it hasn't worked before. So you're afraid of that negativity again. And Elena and I throw around one of our all-time favorite words, trust, all of the time for everything. And I feel like it's actually really important to bring up here in relationships because one of the biggest trauma responses that you have in a romantic capacity is feeling like you want to trust and maybe it's not safe to trust but not based off of necessarily what the person has or hasn't done, but because of what's happened to you in the past. I'm going to go back to start with something you said earlier, because I think it's so potent. It's that when we're talking about romantic settings, it's that vulnerability, you know? And when we're vulnerable, like you said, it's going to trigger every single trauma response that you've got running. They're all going to come up. But what you've got to remember is there's two of you in this relationship. The other person is experiencing exactly the same thing. So if you're both operating from your trauma responses, there's going to be this big disconnect. And it's recognizing where your trauma response could be playing out and trusting yourself to overcome that so that you can open up and be vulnerable mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically with this other person. And this has been a huge lesson for me over the past few years since I got divorced. But there's been a few light bulb moments and I'm like, the trauma responses are playing out. Behave yourself, Elena, you know? Yes, exactly. And and I love that, you know, we've got the awareness to be like, oh, look at that. Look at what's come to chitter chat today. (laughs) 
And it's a beautiful thing. And I also just really want to add in the connotation of vulnerability here too, because so frequently I hear vulnerability correlated as like a negative, oh, oh, I have to be vulnerable, oh, oh, eh, uh, like it's a bad thing. But actually vulnerability is one of the most beautiful things that we can do for ourselves first of all, but then for the person or people that we're connecting with, because vulnerability means it's real, it's genuine, it's authentic. And I think we all crave that authenticity because we want genuine connections. We want more realness in our life. And in order to have that, you actually get to be vulnerable in order to create authentic connections. It's taking the masks off. It's letting your real self be seen. You know, in these relationships, like Michelle said, that other person will see you like no one else. And I always say, and I'm not just looking for like a lover, I'm looking for my best friend, you know? My ex-husband and I, we were best friends as well as husband and wife, and we just grew apart, you know? I went on this personal development journey, he didn't, and I changed, I changed a lot, and there's just this huge void came between us. And even though we're divorced, I still love and respect him as a friend, he's the father of my children, we're always going to have that connection to one another, but we had this amazing friendship and that I think that's what I'm seeking again with someone else because I've had it once and he probably to this day knows me still better than anyone else in the world because we were together for 15 years and you know he's seen me through the lowest points in my life and I say you know I say to him openly i probably wouldn't be here today if it hadn't been for him. You know, he saw me through the darkest moments when I was really struggling. And that, that's vulnerability. Exactly. To be who you really are in each fluid moment, whether it's happy, sad, elated, completely losing your shit, you know, in all of your different pieces, like that's real love. And, you know, I say continuously to people that I feel that your, you know, sacred union, your true love, they shouldn't just be your partner. They should also be your best friend, your lover, your teammate, your life's companion. And I think that's one of the reasons why there are so many trauma responses that come up in a romantic setting because it is the closest that anybody else can ever get to you. And so, yeah, definitely choose that person wisely and, you know, qualify them for the position. But also note when maybe you're pushing them away because, of your own trauma responses and things that have happened in your past or maybe where you're punishing them in some way or maybe you're fearful in some way. It makes us show up in really strange, bizarre ways. But then also note they too will have their own trauma responses that they will be projecting onto you and If you've got the open forum of being able to discuss anything openly, honestly, and vulnerably, communication is key, they say, to relationships. And I think truthful, vulnerable communication most definitely is. Without a doubt. It has to be authentic, honest truth. And that can be scary for people because confrontation and fear of confrontation is another trauma response, you know? And this is where it's going to show up, is in these vulnerable moments. And it can show up at work as well. I know we're going to discuss work, so this could segue nicely into our work chat. And it's that fear of confrontation, that in itself, that's a trauma response because you've tried in the past to be seen or been heard and you've not been seen and you've not been listened to. So you've then created this pattern that didn't feel good. I didn't feel safe. So now I'm just not going to do it. 
Exactly. And I love that you've gone straight into that fear of conflict because that's a massive trauma response, both for in self, in romantic relationships, and also in the workspace. And a lot of this fear of conflict isn't just what's happened to you in the past, but it's that your voice isn't valid or wasn't valid at some point in the past because at the end of the day, everybody just wants to be seen, heard, held, and respected. Like we truly want people to be able to hold that space for us and to understand us so that we feel like we're not alone. We as human beings, we're not designed to be on our own. And I know I've banged on about that an awful lot, so I won't get into that today. But with this fear of conflict, maybe contemplate How is this showing up in how you put yourself out into the world? How does it show up in your relationships? And then, yeah, how is it showing up in your work? It's a really interesting one, the fear of conflict. And I know it's something I have battled with in the past. And I think being a nurse and nursing is so hierarchical, you know, and you feel like you have to know your place and you stay there and you don't push the boundaries. And that's true to an extent, but you still have a voice. You still deserve to be seen, to be heard, to be understood. If your needs are not being met by an employer, you, the law states, you know, you're entitled to your needs being met, you know, and When I first started publicly sharing about my mission to reduce burnout, I thought, oh, I'm waiting on the backlash here because I thought something's going to happen. You know, it'll be like, I got the imposter syndrome. That's another, that's almost fear of confrontation because I was like, who am I? Why should I do this? And I thought, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to push the comfort zone. I'm doing it. There's been no backlash to date, touch wood. And everyone that hears about what I'm doing. They reach out, they want to help. They're like, what can I do? You know, this is amazing. I'm so grateful that you're doing this. And it encourages me to keep going. But there's always that imposter syndrome, which ultimately is that fear of confrontation in the back of my mind, because I just think, you know, I'm just a nurse from a small town in Scotland. Who who am I to take on the nursing world? But I am so driven by this mission and I understand that there's so many nurses, amazing, wonderful nurses out there, and they're tolerating ridiculous conditions. And a lot of them are scared to speak up because of this antiquated system that we work in. Yes, There's two points that I really want to make there. First of all, with anybody else who's experiencing imposter syndrome, just imagine what the world would be like if we didn't have people that stepped up into those roles. I mean, even big names like Tony Robbins and and Oprah and, you know, people that have really been like huge. Can you imagine if they had stayed in that, oh, well, who am I? I mean, Tony has shared stories about back when he was a janitor, for heaven's sakes. Like, imagine if him in his janitor role was like, oh, well, who am I to try and coach someone and help someone? He's literally helped millions of people around the world. And that's just one human. Like, we could talk for hours on all of the people stepping up. And I don't know about you, but I know for me, the most inspirational people are the ones that, are the most real and share their stories. And so that was my first little segue on what you were saying. But then second of all, in relation to what you're saying about nurses in the workplace and feeling like they might not have a voice, I actually think this is you know, a problem that I'm seeing in that industry in general too, because for example, yesterday I was coaching a client who's also a first responder and something we were discussing yesterday was about that she felt like she couldn't speak up because she's constantly told how she's just a number. So she's replaceable. So therefore her voice isn't valid. What she has to say doesn't matter. And I wonder how many people feel like that and then they're afraid of actually speaking up because of whether it's actual belittling or the system itself or feeling like you're not good enough or whatever it is, then 
it prevents from actually saying and doing what maybe needs to be done in order to make the workplace bigger and better for everyone. I think you've hit the nail on the head there with the feeling like you're replaceable because it's something that I hear regularly from clients as well. And, you know, I think the GFC has created a lot of patterns as well, because the knock-on effect from that was, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs. We went into this financial crisis. People, the ones who weren't pulling their weight, supposedly, like I'm not saying they weren't, but People who were seen to not be, I don't know, over-delivering, which is so wrong because it's encouraging this toxic work culture by, you know, rewarding people who are doing this. It's just, I think the whole system is just a bit askew at the moment and we need to get it back into balance because we're all valuable. We all have our own strengths and our own weaknesses and we can all bring our own strengths to a team exactly and if people are afraid because of maybe past negative experiences they've had in a workplace and it may not even be in their current workplace it could be an old workplace but then they're afraid to bring their beautiful and unique abilities and attributes that they personally possess to the forefront because of these negative experiences because of being told they're a number or told they're replaceable or, you know, being, you know, bullied, intimidated or anything else that may have happened. It brings this trauma response up in the workplace. And then a lot of people I've seen from at least my coaching perspective is then people are actually afraid to step into the fullness of what they have to offer themselves, a workplace, a business or whatever, because they've been told that they're not good enough in some way, which already bought into the trauma responses for their own personal self. But now it's infiltrating their work and their career and what they want to contribute to the world. And so it creates an additional trauma response. It's a bit of a self-perpetuating cycle, isn't it? It's breaking that cycle so that we don't keep going round and round in the same loop. It's getting back to, you know, the fear of confrontation or conflict. It's being able to have those courageous conversations, be it in your personal life or with your employer or even with yourself, you know, calling yourself out on your BS and where you could be hiding away. And there is another podcast I recorded uh, last year with Ali Nitschke, and that's on how to have a courageous conversation. So if this has piqued some kind of interest, go back and look. I can't remember exactly what episode it is. I'll put a link to it in the show notes so that you can get some more information on that because Ali digs deep. This is what she does. She's amazing. And she breaks it down into five steps on how to have a courageous conversation and make it much easier for you to do that. Ali's absolutely amazing at helping people do that in their workplace. So if you're feeling like, you know, work is definitely triggering some trauma responses in yourself, that podcast with Ali would be ideal. Definitely. I will put it in the show notes. But yeah, now we've digressed. So yeah, I think we've covered a huge amount of different trauma responses here. I know I've, I feel like I've been very vulnerable, probably more vulnerable than I've been in an episode before, but it's good because I like to share because, you know, I'm human. I'm not here just to preach to the masses. I'm in the trenches doing it all with you too. And I understand what it's like. And I think I want you guys to know that I'm human and I'm experiencing all this along with you. And I think that's such a beautiful reminder. Like we aren't perfect human beings. Nobody is. Like we are constantly learning, growing and evolving just as much as you guys are. And we're going to fuck it up along the way, just like everybody else is. But when you have awareness of these things, and I mean, we've just barely skimmed the surface today. There's so many tangents that could go off of this, but The fact of the matter is when you start to become aware of things like this and if you have people in your life that can 
help keep you accountable and to help remind you of, hey, I think this is where one of your trauma responses is coming up. And I mean, you guys have heard enough from me and Elena with our episodes alone. And, you know, Elena and I are pretty open about how close our friendship is. We do that for one another. Like we'll connect and be like, so I'm lovingly going to remind you of X, Y, Z. And I think that's so important to have people in your life that just unconditionally love you and remind you when maybe you've come a little bit off center or maybe you're being hard on yourself or maybe an old trauma response is showing up. So we lovingly invite you to just remember you're not perfect. You're never going to be and that neither are we and we're all on this journey together to help one another live the happiest lives that we can truly live. That's beautiful. We're all perfectly imperfect. There you go. And I love that you call me out on my BS when I start, Michelle. Oh, Michelle and I WhatsApp voice message each other. <laughs> I'm like, Michelle! <laughs> and I do the same back. I think it's the best. And that's, I mean, I talk a lot about what I call soul family. And we all need to have people in our lives that are, you know, our family that aren't by blood. And, you know, just the people that love us and get us soul sisters, etc. And so Elena and I, we do all of this for each other all the time, because that's the only way we know how to do life. <laughs> exactly. And I love that you're in my life. Oh, likewise, honey. So yeah, maybe have a think, see if you've got someone that you can have as a, an accountability buddy or someone who will lovingly help you when you are starting to go into some kind of trauma response and, and help you recognize that that's exactly what you're doing and get you out of there again. But thank you, Michelle, for today's chat. I love how our chats just flow and take on their own energy and go off on tangents. It's the bit. Both shared a lot. I hope the listeners, I hope you guys have really enjoyed it and we've given you some stuff to think about. If any of you have been triggered, please feel free to reach out to either Michelle or myself. We're happy to help. And there's also nurse and midwife support who are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Their number will be in the show notes too. Thanks, Michelle. All Michelle's contact details are down there in the show notes as well along with mine so yeah give us a shout if you need us and i'll just end things there it's been amazing as always michelle i look forward to the next episode with you yeah who knows where it will end up taking you guys next thank you for listening to the happy nurse podcast if you've enjoyed today's content and would like to join the happy nurse community head over to facebook and check out the happy nurse au facebook page and request to join the Happy Nurse community. Also check out happynurse.com.au for access to free downloads and subscription to my blog. See you soon. And in the meantime, remember to always offer yourself the same compassion that you so freely give to others.